After Kavanaugh, the next battle royale on Capitol Hill puts Texas at the center of the conversation. A big push for the border wall today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio, with support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. The Kavanaugh confirmation may have had an unexpected consequence, delaying a fight over the border wall until after the midterms. It looks like this one could get ugly. We'll have the latest. Also, a border battle of a different sort, how to fend off biological threats how the Department of Homeland Security is teaming up with Texas AgriLife. And the last day for voters to register in Texas, how Texpats in London are getting involved in the biggest statewide race. All that and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this October 9th. I'm David Brown. Thanks so much for spending a bit of your Texas time with us on this Tuesday. Don't know if you've seen a fascinating experiment in political polling. The New York Times is doing this, a kind of real-time live polling of one of the most interesting races in the Lone Star State in many years. Of course, we're talking about the contest between Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman from El Paso, who wants to take his seat, Democrat Beto O'Rourke. The issue, as the time frames it, uh, times frames it, is whether Democrats can turn Texas blue, of course, using this Senate race as a lens. When last we checked, they'd placed 11,360 phone calls across Texas. You could watch them being made in real time on a map. 200 people have responded so far, and so far it's 54% to 42% in favor of Cruz, with an awful lot of these respondents in the Houston and Dallas area. They're still conducting the survey, which at this stage is hardly scientific. But the RealClearPolitics.com average of completed surveys currently has Cruz six points ahead. You know, this is such a big event, even the folks at the BBC are buzzing, as you'll hear in just a few minutes. But first, we want to turn to what comes next, not just what follows the midterms, but what comes as the main event after the Kavanaugh confirmation. Because it appears Texas will be at the center of it. In fact... As it turns out, were it not for the Kavanaugh hearings, this might have been a much bigger factor in the run-up to Election Day. Who knows? We're talking about the president's promise for a southern border wall. Erica Werner is writing about it for The Washington Post. Welcome. Thank you for having me. How did this come up? What was the context in which Speaker Ryan was saying there's going to be this big fight over the wall? Well, he was speaking uh, at the National Press Club yesterday on Monday and delivering kind of some standard remarks um, about the Republican agenda and criticisms of Democrats heading into the midterms. Uh, in the Q&A, um, the questioning turned to what is going to happen with the wall, which, of course, is a Trump priority that remains uh, undelivered by Republicans. Uh, and Speaker Ryan repeated a commitment that he's kind of made before, but it was a little bit sharper and more specific yesterday, that there will be a fight after the midterms over funding the wall. Uh, the deadline for funding for the Homeland Security Department is December 7th. Mm -hmm. So if it is not resolved to the liking of President Trump, there is the possibility of a shutdown of the Homeland Security Department and a few other agencies. Well, obviously, this is of enormous interest to folks here in Texas and certainly along the border with Mexico, where already in some places there have been reports over the past just few weeks of portions of this wall already going up. How do you square that with what Ryan is warning about a big fight after the midterms? Speaker Ryan himself, along with other 
uh, Republican leaders, Mitch McConnell and others, have actually been trying to convince President Trump that the wall already is being built, which, as you say, it is. They've even taken pictures of the wall going up to show him uh, in the Oval Office to kind of convince him to stand down from wow. some of his rhetoric and threats about the wall. Um, but as you know, regardless of kind of the reality on the ground, his rhetoric throughout the campaign was build the wall. That's what he still says at rallies and have Mexico pay for it. So he wants a bigger down payment, a big number that he can tout. And he is not satisfied by, by what Congress has given him so far. What do you make of the timing of this? I know that uh, some GOP leaders had been hoping that the president would be willing to postpone a fight over this until at least after the midterms. Looks like they got what they asked for. Yes, that was and it was interesting how that came about um, at kind of the critical moment for when the fight could have happened, which was September 30th, the end of the fiscal year, which is when the president you know, had to sign some spending bills to keep the government running. Uh, Capitol Hill was completely consumed with the Supreme Court Kavanaugh confirmation. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, the spending fight and the wall issue kind of went under the radar, uh, and there was no blow-up over that. Um, the president signed a couple spending bills that fund large parts of the government through 2019 and keep the Homeland Security Department and some other agencies kind of on autopilot through December 7th. It's my understanding that the president wants $5 billion for the border wall in 2019. Democrats have only agreed to, I guess, less than $2 billion of that. Did, did Speaker Ryan give any sense of how this fight is going to ultimately uh, be resolved? No. And for all the discussion of this um, in the past few months about trying to you know, convince the president to postpone the fight until after the election, which they succeeded in doing, there has never been a clear strategy laid out by anyone publicly, and I don't know that it, ex it exists about how to get to that $5 billion number. Uh, Ryan again asked about this yesterday and said that it remains to be seen. They'll work it out in December, but it's not clear how they will do that. They need Democratic votes in the Senate. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens in the midterms. But for now, at least, Democrats are in no mood to go along with that higher number. Uh, briefly, is there still this talk about there being a solid border wall or has that been ditched in lieu of something that's much more sort of uh, uh, piecemeal? Well, in reality, as you and your listeners know, it's not possible to build a solid border wall along the entire border. Uh, and leading Republicans like John Cornyn will acknowledge that uh, when you talk to them. But rhetorically from the president, he often still makes it sound like what he wants is a big, solid border wall. And there are some kind of uh, conservatives in the House, Freedom Caucus types and others like Steve King of Iowa, who insist that what they actually want is a physical border wall along the entire border. But that's just not the reality. That's not going to happen. And even Trump has occasionally used words like fences uh, to describe what he wants. We've been talking with Erica Werner. She reports for The Washington Post, and we'll link to her latest at TexasStandard.org so you can check it out. Erica, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. We sure do appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Lest you missed it, uh, today's the last day to register to vote in Texas if you want to cast a ballot in November. You know, we mentioned the Senate race between incumbent Ted Cruz and Representative Beto O'Rourke, not just dominating headlines in Texas, but even getting the attention of the writers at Saturday Night Live, who did a riff on an imaginary attempt by Ted Cruz to get out the youth vote. If you missed it, it's all over YouTube and beyond. It's also making news overseas, too. Not the SNL clip, but the actual race. The BBC wanted to find out how this contest is playing out right in their own backyard, which is to say London, where there's a sizable number of what you might call texpats. This is a very crucial election, and the deadline's coming up quickly, so we really appreciate your help. And don't forget to The deadline to register to vote in this year's midterms is closing. And here in the Democrats Abroad campaign office in London, there's a frenzy of activity. In a windowless room in a basement, around a dozen volunteers are making calls in the evening after they finish work. Campaign office manager David Lettany is in charge. So we're calling voters in the UK, some people doing overseas as well, registered American voters here in the UK that have given us their details. So in other words, it's a warm call, it's a gentle reminder. Hey, have you requested your absentee ballot? Next to a flag pinned on the wall is a white marker board. So what are you pointing at right here? I'm pointing at our chart of when registration deadlines are. For instance, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, 9 October, they have to have the registration in by. In the UK, there are some casual stereotypes about Texas cowboy hats and a slant towards conservative politics. With, with every cliche, there's a little bit of truth. And, and some of people I grew up with are, are people with big hats and, and frankly, people who, who carry guns. Another David, originally from Round Rock, Texas, has been living in the UK for 18 years. Some of them are actually really the, the most interested in, in the O'Rourke campaign and, and other congressional campaigns. The prospect of Ted Cruz potentially losing his Senate seat has grabbed the attention of some Texans living here in the UK. Uh, and the races in Texas are super exciting. Beto O'Rourke, I think, he's on fire right now. Rebecca lived in Austin before she moved to London. She too says this election feels different. Excited and slightly nauseous. Um, I think it's really, ex I don't know, I feel like this is the first time since Trump was elected that people have a lot of reason to be really helpful. Of course, it's not just the Democrats active here in the UK. In a wood-panelled pub in South London, I met Sarah. My name is Sarah Elliott, and I'm chair of Republicans Overseas UK. Both organizations work to make sure that Americans living here in the UK are aware of their right to vote. We try to educate our members um, and also keep them plugged in as to the hot races and where their vote matters, of course. But the idea is to make sure they understand that absentee voting is simple and easy, and we help them with that process. Much of the coverage of the midterms in the U.S. has focused on the energy on the side of the Democrats. I asked Sarah Elliott from Republicans Overseas if that dynamic was playing out here in the U.K. Enthusiasm gap has been a good 12-point spread between Democrats and Republicans, with Democrats being very fired up. But I think that's changing as of the last two weeks. The Senate confirmation hearing for Justice Brett Kavanaugh was carried live here on U.K. television. Both parties say that issue is energizing their voters just a few weeks from election day. Voters are getting fired up about it, and again, it's uniting the party, whereas Trump had been really divisive in the party. This is an area where we're like, no, this is a really good guy who's been vilified unjustly. For Texas Standard in London, I'm Alexander Griffiths at the BBC.
Joining us here in the studio, it's social media editor Wells Dunbar. It's October 9th, the last day to register to vote in the 2018 midterms, as many are noting on social media. If you've registered to vote in previous elections and haven't moved or nothing's changed, you're all set. If you need to check if you're registered, you can confirm that online by checking your status at the Texas Secretary of State's website. We've shared that link on our Facebook and Twitter pages, or you can just search online, am I registered to vote in Texas? Need to register? Texans can fill out an application in person at their county voter registrar's office. You can also find most uh, registrations at post offices, libraries, and such, but they must be signed and postmarked tonight on our Facebook page. Julie Lucas says, we're ready to vote. My daughter turned 18 in March registered to vote and is excited to participate in this rite of passage. And Karen Alfaro says, I unfortunately can't vote yet because of my immigration status, but I am so pumped to see the results and the turnout for this election. Just one story folks are talking about. Lots going on. Nikki Haley's resignation at the United Nations. Is that Nations. confirmed? She's, uh, that's been confirmed. Yes, yes. Just met with the president earlier and it was all over the televisions. Oh. So. Well, uh, yeah, I'm seeing uh, someone else might be meeting with the president later this week. Kanye West apparently headed to the White House. Mm. Who knows? Maybe He'll, you know, for that U.N. post, throw his hat into the ring. I don't know. Coming up on 19 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. A whole lot more ahead. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Business and your money on The Standard. I'm David Brown. It's a situation that might sound like a good one to have. So much energy, you don't know what to do with it all. Well, in the West Texas oil field, companies have so much natural gas on tap, they're increasingly burning it off into the air, flaring, as it's called, has recently hit record high levels. That's alarmed critics concerned about local pollution, to say nothing of the effect on dark skies out west, itself a valued resource. Companies say there's not a whole lot they can do about it at the moment, though they're trying, they say. As Houston Public Media's Travis Bubenick tells us, the future of the issue largely hangs on how aggressively the industry decides to act. A couple years ago, Jim and Suzanne Franklin's quiet country life outside the town of Balmeray was a lot different. At night, used to, this was so dark, you had the most beautiful view of the Milky Way. You start here and you just start counting one, two. Now Suzanne says the night horizon off their small front porch is lit up with gas flares. That one's seven and eight, it just keeps going on around. The Franklins live in what's called the Delaware Basin, part of the wider West Texas oil field that's booming with new industry activity and increased oil and gas production. On the highway out front of their house, they're seeing more and more big rigs fly by. As drillers pull growing amounts of oil from the ground, a lot of extra gas comes up with it. The gas is a byproduct that's not worth as much as the oil, and pretty much all the pipelines that could bring the gas to market are full up. So companies burn it off. Suzanne says the fumes from a flare near her house have been making it hard to breathe. We used to keep our windows open, but we don't can't anymore. Do anymore. can't do it with the gas anymore. As a company, we don't want to flare gas. Kelly Swan's a spokesperson for Oklahoma-based WPX Energy, a company that's drilling a couple hours north of the Franklins. We have an economic incentive to capture as much gas as we can. I meet up with Swan at a brand new natural gas processing plant the company built near the Texas-New Mexico border. Statewide, the amount of gas being flared is still only about 2% of all the gas that's produced. But here and around the world, companies say they'd still rather not flare. Swan says when his company started drilling here, they knew if they didn't build out some kind of infrastructure, they'd have to flare a lot. 
So they designed the plant to harness as much gas as possible. This is what I would call a long-term solution to flaring because as long as there are wells here in the area, this plant is going to be here too. Some of the biggest companies are trying to cut down on flaring. ExxonMobil is committed to a 25% flaring reduction by 2020. Shell and BP have signed on to a global effort to drop routine flaring levels to zero by 2030. But for some companies, this just isn't as big of a priority. Smaller independent companies, which there are many of in West Texas, can't necessarily afford to focus on capturing gas. It's not going to just happen on economics and pipeline capacity alone. Colin Layden's with the Environmental Defense Fund, which put out a report last year tracking how much different companies flare. There was a, a pretty wide variance in performance, uh, with some companies flaring up to 9% of all the gas that comes out of the ground along with the oil that they're drilling for. Layden's group applauds companies that do plan ahead, but he says the industry should do more on that front. He notes flaring rates jumped a few years ago even when there was enough pipeline space on the market. Industry watchers expect flaring to drop as new pipelines get built over the next year or so. But in the meantime, Suzanne Franklin says she's had enough. I'm ready to move back to town somewhere. I'm looking for 10 acres close to town. In town, you don't smell anything. In West Texas, I'm Travis Spubinick. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. As we've seen since 9-11, most certainly national security can sometimes make for surprising bedfellows. This news item certainly caught our attention when we read about it. A partnership between the Department of Homeland Security and Texas A&M's AgriLife Service. A 10-year project, nearly $4 million in funding for the first year to launch a new Center for Excellence for Cross-Border Threat Screening and Supply Chain Defense. Come again? Dr. Melissa Berquist, Director of the Institute for Infectious Animal Diseases at Texas A&M AgriLife. She's involved with this project. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Why does the DHS need a program like this? Unknown biological threats? So... The Department of Homeland Security has had a historical record of working with universities to solve vexing problems in terms of our national security. Getting cargo, animals, and people safely across our borders Mm -hmm. is a really big challenge. And tapping into a university-based center of excellence where you have not only you know, great minds, great students uh, producing outstanding science and new discovery, but also having the service-based mission of AgriLife Research and many of the agencies within Texas A&M University system, where we understand what it's like to work with operational components of DHS and solve real-world problems. That's that's a um, it's an interesting and provocative thing you say there because uh, you know you you hear the words Department of Homeland Security and biological threats, they don't necessarily go hand in hand, at least in in my in the thinking of a lot of Texans, I think, with Texas A&M AgriLife, which we think of as, you know, the local extension agent and that sort of thing. Uh, give us a sense of the types of threats we're talking about when we say biological threats. 
Sure. So, I mean, the, the center is focused on biological threats ca that can adversely affect public health or agricultural health, so both plants and livestock. When we're looking at what's coming across our borders, um, some of what the center has proposed to work on are point-of-care diagnostics that Customs and Border Protection agents could be able to use in terms of screening um, both cargo and people, as well as um, maintain workforce health at the border. There's bacteria, viruses, um, you know, other potentially emerging threats um, that are circulating globally. And in terms of being able to better protect the people of Texas first, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but the people of the nation, um, we need to have a, a good handle on what is actually um, being trafficked across the U.S. border. Now, that's an interesting idea, the, the trafficking across the border. Yeah, I think that many people who've traveled, say, to California, for example, on some of the main roadways have seen these agricultural inspection centers. We're talking about a passive threat there to agriculture in California, where it's a major industry. Are you are imagining, when, you, when we talk about these biological threats, that this could be an active threat against the nation's uh, security or, or perhaps Texas's security? Sure. So, I mean, obviously, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is interested in both. Um, they were kind of founded on the premise of, uh, you know, bad actors or terrorism threats. Um, but emerging threats as well as, you know, natural causes are of concern as well. Um, and so in terms of the work that the center is focusing on, we're trying to kind of cover all bases. If we have some sort of massive biological event, um, I think the first instinct would be, well, that could possibly be, uh, you know, a terrorist actor. But in terms of response, um, we need to get people in place. We need to get resources in place. We need to, to treat it the same no matter what so that we can actually get back towards the road to recovery. Determining whether it's nefarious intent or not, um, that's left to other folks. Our job as the Center of Excellence is just to provide the tools, resources, um, as well as the training needed for people to be able to identify what the threat is and have the um, tools and technologies in place to respond appropriately. It's a 10-year project. Dr. Melissa Burquist is director of the Institute for Infectious Animal Diseases at Texas A&M. Thanks so much. You're so welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Today is the last day you can register to vote in this November's elections in Texas. And just yesterday, Vice President Mike Pence was in Dallas to stump for Republican incumbents in two of the state's most hotly contested races. Pence's first stop was for longtime U.S. Representative Pete Sessions. He's facing a tough challenge for a seat in the 32nd Congressional District from Democrat Colin Allred, a civil rights attorney and former NFL linebacker. While they talk about a blue wave, let's make sure the red wave starts here. That audio is courtesy of WFAA. Pence also campaigned for U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, who is facing off against U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke, an El Paso Democrat. The first day of early voting kicks off on October 22nd.
Federal education law will be requiring some Texas high school students to take additional standardized tests. And as KUT's Jerry Quijano reports, the Texas Education Agency is considering a change that would leave districts across the state picking up the check. If a Texas student has taken certain STAR tests before starting high school, that's created a problem. No state assessments left to test them with. Dieta Culbertson with the Texas Education Agency says the Every Student Succeeds Act requires that students be tested in math and English at least once during high school. As a result, about 109,000 students will have to take either the SAT or the ACT this year. So any student who is currently enrolled in high school and took the Algebra 1 and or both English Language Arts and, of course, exams prior to high school will need to take one of these tests in order to uh, meet the requirements for federal law. The additional tests are expected to cost around $5.4 million statewide, and the TEA is now reviewing public comments after proposing the price tag be covered by school districts. In a letter to the TEA, Austin ISD said these tests would cost the district at least $100,000 for current students and called for a legislative appropriation request to cover the cost. Jerry Quijano, KUT News. Reigning Major League Baseball champs, the Houston Astros, are returning to the American League Championship Series for the second year in a row. They clinched the spot Monday after sweeping the Cleveland Indians in three games. Astros infielder Alex Bregman shared his thoughts after yesterday's 11-3 win over Cleveland. We're excited. We're, we're looking forward to the next game. Um, get ready to, getting ready to start off quick against whatever team we play next. That team could be either the Boston Red Sox or the New York Yankees. Whoever wins that division series will face off against the Houston Astros starting Saturday. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. For months, Florida's beaches have been plagued by red tide. It's a kind of algae bloom that can kill marine life and harm humans if they're exposed to it. The most recent bloom has lasted for months, and few beaches along the Sunshine State's western coast have been untouched, which has created major problems, both for those oceanside ecosystems and certainly for tourism. It's a situation that some Texans are watching with increased interest since our Gulf Coast is no stranger to red tide either. Tony Reisinger is Coastal and Marine Resources Extension Agent with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service and Texas Sea Grant at Texas A&M University in Cameron County. Tony, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you, David. First, what do we know about what causes red tide and what makes it pop up when it does? Well, we don't really know exactly what causes it. We know it's always out there. Uh, Texas A&M did some research a few years ago and found out that the Bay of Campeche is a source of our Texas red tide blooms. Bay of Campeche. Put us us on a map there because I want to make sure that our listeners understand where we're talking about. It's the southern part of the Gulf of Mexico, off of Mexico, between the Yucatan and, say, Tamaulipas, the state of Tamaulipas, which is just south of us here in Texas. Tony, when was the last time Texas experienced a red tide bloom? It was in September when we had uh, a red tide bloom occur here in Texas. Uh, a device called a cytobot in, the, uh, in Aransas, uh, Port Aransas, picked up uh, elevated numbers of cells. I think it was like... 
30 cells in six milliliters, and that's a little bit elevated. It's more than background. And so Texas A&M give, gave us a, uh, a heads up, but it didn't last long, and it moved more north. Um, we only found background down here off South Padre Island, but uh, we're lucky. We've uh, dodged the bullet. What was it, what is it that people living along the coast actually fear? What, what's, what is the danger that this red tide brings? It, it's more dangerous for people that, that have asthma or, or uh, respiratory problems because the cell contains a neurotoxin called brevitoxin. And when you breathe it, it irritates your respiratory system. So we, prefer, we warn people that with asthma to pretty much stay away from it or stay inside air conditioning. And when you do have a heavy bloom, uh, the cells are called unarmored dinoflagellates, and they break easily in the waves and the surf mm -hmm. and it aerosolizes and so the aerosol is blown on shore usually if the wind is on shore and people breathe that and that that results in in the irritation of the respiratory system but there is no red tide in texas right now i must say that whenever people hear red tide they they think that we're having a bloom but we are not in texas so how did how have we become relatively lucky compared with our friends in florida we were lucky. Um, you could probably attribute it to several several things. Um, could be the winds, the currents. Um, we did have a cold water upwelling this summer, and red tide likes hot, calm water. And we we did see the, the coastal area, I guess, around Corpus and down here the, in the surf, the temperature cooled down significantly, and that could have inhibited any bloom that we could have had. It's not just the uh, harm that this can do to people uh, who suffer from asthma, but we're also talking about massive fish kills, at least in the past here in Texas, right? Yes, we've had, uh, and the worst one we ever had was 1986, and we lost 22 million fish in it. The bloom spread throughout the whole state of Texas, and um, it, was, it was significant. But not only do we lose fish, uh, mammals are susceptible We've seen uh, dogs die from, uh, from inhaling, we, we suspect, foam that's on the beach. And we've seen uh, Mexican ground squirrels die, uh, pelicans. Um, uh, we've seen lots of animals affected by it, too. Well, so I wonder, as we look at the situation in Florida, whether there might be some lessons that we can take away and apply to Texas. Is there any way that we can preempt uh, uh, red tide uh, in, uh, in in the future? I don't think so. It's pretty much a naturally occurring event. Um, it is occurring more frequently lately. Um, I think we've seen over a dozen since the 1986 bloom, a dozen blooms in Texas. Um, but before 1986, there were only three reported blooms in the state that we know of. Tony Reisinger is a Coastal and Marines Resources Extension Agent, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service, also Texas Sea Grant at Texas A&M University. He's in Cameron County. Tony, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. You're welcome. You know, it may be hard for a lot of folks to appreciate today, but not that long ago, in parts of some of our major cities across the Lone Star State, people were living in shacks with dirt floors. All that changed, and we'll tell you how as the standard continues.
Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. Well, on the plains, we don't have groundwater, and the plow lakes dry up if you don't have a lot of rain. And so it took windmills to pump the water out from the water table under the ground. And steam engines could only go 15 miles before they had to stop and take on a load of water. So it took a lot of windmills to keep the water tanks filled for the trains. So it helped settle the plains. Between 1850 and 1920, there were over 700 companies manufacturing windmills. And with rural, rural electrification, more and more people were going to electric pumps instead of the water pumpers, wind water pumpers. So some companies went out of business, some diversified and stayed in business doing other things. I was raised on a farm, got my drinking water from a windmill, so it was basically an air motor top with the metal blades. We didn't have drinking water if you didn't have a windmill. We raised cotton and sorghum growing up, and we were never allowed to play on the tower. You got one or two steps on the ladder, someone hollered, get off the windmill, get away from the well, don't play. Well, one time we would climb halfway up and jump off, and nobody, my mom had a new baby, so we weren't watched quite so close that year. We were just little kids. Now I'm kind of scared of heights, but my grandparents have lived in the same house over 40 years for the same farmer for all their life. And there's just, you have respect for it now that you realize how important they were in history. It's just, we don't have a lot of rain. So when your plow lake dries up, dig well and pump it out of the ground. You can use a hand pump, but the wind can turn it and keep your tanks filled. And some people have told stories on days when the wind don't blow, and they stand on top and turn the blade by hand so it still pumps enough to give the cattle a drink. I'm Sharon Wharton, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. Forty-two minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. You know, it's hard to appreciate just what a revolution it really was. Back in 1941, on the brink of what would be America's entry into World War II, many Westsiders in the Alamo City still had no plumbing. Whole families lived in wooden shacks with dirt floors. And then suddenly, everything changed. And it happened with the opening of the Alasan Apache Courts, the first public housing project in San Antonio. It's now the subject of a new exhibition, and Texas Public Radio's Norma Martinez was at its opening. In 1921, a devastating flood struck San Antonio. Of the 52 who died, 47 lived on the west side. Already living in substandard homes, displaced residents were left in even more dire straits. A local priest, Father Carmelo Tranquesi, lobbied politicians for a public housing project to house residents of the mostly Hispanic impoverished neighborhood. After the project nearly stalled, Tranquesi wrote to First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, asking for her support. After her assurances that the project would go ahead, building began. A new exhibit, Los Courts, highlights the residents and culture that grew out of the projects. 
In the court's community center, tall panels present pictures and stories detailing the history of the courts, including the notable residents who once made their homes there. 91-year-old Lilia Vela was making the rounds of the community center in her wheelchair. She was particularly proud to point out a picture on those panels showing a just-married young couple photographed outside the courts. That's her and her husband, Manuel, in 1947. Vela was one of the court's original residents. We, we lived in the courts for 20 years when, with my mother when we were children. We, my husband and I got married. We had five children, three girls, two boys. The now-widowed Vela says the best memories she had of the courts were of simply having a roof over her head. Most of all, the bathroom, having a toilet, having a bathtub, where we didn't have that when we used to live in the, in the old neighborhoods. I didn't have that. Another product of the courts is Blanca Gonzalez. San Antonians might know her best as Blanca Rosa, a member of the vocal group Las Tesoros de San Antonio. This vivacious 84-year-old also holds good memories of growing up in the courts. They used to have like arts and crafts and games and everything for the young people. Basketball, I used to play basketball. Yes, it was something, I, I grew up here. I'm very proud to have grown up in the Alasan Apache Courts. The Alasan Apache Courts are one to two-story concrete structures with metal doors and no doorbells. There is no laundry room for residents, and most units have no central air, relying instead on window units. Free Wi-Fi is only available in the community room. What was once a step up for residents back in 1941 is considered substandard today. The San Antonio Housing Authority has been conducting public housing renovations and redevelopments across the city. David Nizavacha is president and CEO of Saha. He says the 70-plus-year-old concrete buildings are due for redevelopment. You know, a lot of our new developments, we're putting in connectivity to the digital access so people can actually have free Wi-Fi so they can gain access to the Internet, which I believe is a basic utility everybody should have, because no matter where you live, you shouldn't be condemned to a life of poverty. You should have the same opportunities. So that doesn't happen here in these developments. The construction's old. It's really hard to uh, retrofit in that regard. So the new developments provide that opportunity, that springboard, that chance that gives everybody to say, hey, you know what? I'm really going to succeed with the support of others, and the Housing Authority wants to play, be a major partner in that role. But there are some opposing voices to redevelopment, which would require a temporary relocation of residents. Graciela Sanchez is director of the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center, a nonprofit that promotes social justice as well as the arts and culture of San Antonio's West Side. How will the schools be affected? Will the new occupants have children? Will those children and those parents that are middle to upper class want to send them to low-performing schools? You know, the social network also, right? People live, might live in the courts, but their abuelitas or their tias, they live in the surrounding areas, and you, they need that for the babysitting. They need that for, you know, that network. When you shut that down, 
and people are also sent away somewhere else, they're not going to have the same social network that they had here. So it's going to affect San Antonio dramatically. But pride in San Antonio's west side is what brings residents and visitors to the exhibit's opening. And singer Blanca Rodriguez, who left the courts decades ago, never fails to tout her orgullo. Yes, but I am very, very proud to be a member of the West Side of San Antonio. Everywhere where I perform, either by myself or with the girls, I always mention that I'm from the West Side. I'm Norma Martinez for the Texas Standard. Support comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Twelve years. That's all we have to limit a climate change catastrophe. That's the dire warning in a new report from the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. The report warns that failing to take steps immediately would lead to food shortages, worsening wildfires, and massive die-offs of coral reefs. Changes are needed toot sweet to avoid this scenario, and they're described in this paper as unprecedented. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is director of the Texas Tech University Climate Science Center, and she joins us now. Dr. Hayhoe, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. This is getting a lot of attention, though we've heard dire predictions before and different calculations about when we might reach a crisis point. Why does the IPCC report seem to matter so much? It's because the point in time is getting closer and closer. When these assessments first began back in 1990, they were saying, you know, I think we have a problem. And then the next one was saying, we're pretty sure we have a problem. And then the one after that said, we definitely have a problem. And now they're saying we need to do something about it. And that is a huge shift in scientific rhetoric because we like to identify the problem, but it's not really our place. We often feel to tell people we need to fix it. But we're at the point where half measures won't do anymore. We really do need to take this a- action. Is there, is there something about the IPCC that makes it especially weighty? Because we've had other uh, uh, climate researchers make their predictions. And of course, Al Gore has been stumping over this uh, for some time. Well, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change represents thousands of scientists around the world. We have a similar effort in the United States called the National Climate Assessment. And our report, which was released last November, says very similar things. It isn't a case of opinion. It's a case of looking at all the data that's been collected by thousands of scientists for decades and even centuries, because this goes back to the 1800s, and drawing the most robust, firm conclusions that we can, which is the fact that this is real, It really is us. The impacts are serious. And the window of time to fix this thing is narrowing rapidly. Uh, The window of time, 12 years to avoid climate catastrophe. How and what steps? The most important thing we have to do is wean ourselves off carbon-based fuels. Every time we burn oil, gas, or coal, it produces heat-trapping gases. Here in Texas, we know how to do that. We already get more of our energy from wind than any other state in the country. And solar is coming along quickly, too. That's happening naturally, just through sheer economics. 
we need to help it happen faster to stave off the worst impacts as well. Well, you mentioned the fact that Texas is a leader in alternative energy, but it's also uh, a, a major oil and fossil fuel state, too. I mean, is this something that's achievable given the political realities? That's the biggest challenge. The challenge isn't in the science of understanding what's happening to our planet. The, the challenge is, are we able, as a human society, given our current institutions, to accelerate this process or not? And, you know, 12 years is not a magic number. You know, if, if we, you know, if it's 13 years or 14 years, the issue is the further we go without action, the greater the impacts. It's like the more packs of cigarettes we smoke, the greater the risks of lung cancer. And so the quicker we can do this, the better off we're going to be. But, you know, it's interesting that how the deadline uh, sometimes tends to focus uh, attention and concentration, right? I mean, uh, some will point to rising temperatures and changes in weather patterns we're already seeing, recent disasters, for example, and they'll say, look, we're already there. Why, why, why 2040? What, what is it about mm -hmm. that that makes that the crisis moment? Some amount of impacts are already inevitable because of all of the fossil fuels we've burned since the 1700s. It's as if we've been smoking a pack of cigarettes a day, not just for years, but for a couple of decades. Some of the impacts are already here today, but the very worst impacts can still be avoided through rapid and concerted efforts. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is the director of the Texas Tech University Climate Science Center. We've been talking about this new report from the IPCC. Uh, Dr. Hayhoe, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We certainly do appreciate it. Thank you. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Our man Wells Dunbar has been monitoring social media across the Lone Star State, and he joins us once again in the studio. Good to see you, sir. Good to see you, David. All right. So what are Texans you, talking about? I'll tell you into that dire report from the United Nations right. on climate change we were just hearing about calling for unprecedented collective action, really sort of seeming to resonate on our Facebook page. There, John Donovan says, there's no way we're going to get our act together anytime soon. So yes, we're in trouble. The only question is when. Seeing similarly dire comments, quite honestly, David, Linda Pallett says, I wonder if we will get a pandemic along with drastic climate change to drastically alter the earth and change the balance of power. There's no question that the earth will survive, but man's life and place in it will be massively changed. So quite honestly, I mean... A lot of people expecting yeah. the next thing to be plague of locusts or something along those lines. Yeah, and, 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 and there's been a lot of discussion of about, yeah, it's like, uh, do dire pronouncements sort of help the cause right. of climate change or do they, or of combating climate change, or do they uh, add up to a sort of fatalistic That's the more sense. serious point, right? I mean, if, if people already have a fatalistic attitude yeah. about it, then where is the political pressure going to come from? Because as... Uh, Professor Hayhoe was just uh, mm -hmm. discussing. If, if you don't have that political will, I mean, that's yeah. really uh, what's And I state. don't think, yeah, you definitely you definitely don't see that currently. Well, speaking of the current political regime, Nikki Haley is trending after her announcement that she has resigned as U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and will be leaving her post at the end of the year. I've seen a lot of she's running jokes on Twitter, but she says she has no 2020 plans. Rather, she says this was her plan all along to hold the post for two or so years and then stay step down. Hmm. So Trump says he will name a successor to Haley within the next two to three weeks.
weeks, maybe sooner. Megan Bronson says what everyone's saying. She tweets, there's an 80% chance this weekend's with Kanye West replacing Nikki Haley as UN ambassador. I guess we can dream. Uh, it's not well. like we've been really wanting for slow news days anyway, but that that's would definitely that's shake definitely things definitely true. Up. You know, uh, I recall that uh, Nikki Haley had said back when there was this anonymous uh, insider in the Trump White House who did the, right, the op-ed in the New York for the Times, New York Times. Yeah. She, at the time, she was saying that's no way to, to act and so on and so forth. If I had any problems with the Trump administration, I would take them directly to the president. Mm -hmm. So I guess a lot of people also wondering what she said to the president when she broke the news that she was going to be leaving. Mm -hmm. what, if, what sort of, uh, if there is, in fact, any rift or any uh, Yeah, uh, I mean, she said she was going to campaign for him, and it was all, you know, smiles and uh, glad hands in the press conference that they had together. So I guess we shall see. We shall see. You know, here's a couple interesting trending terms today. Tough as Texas is trending, and Richard Linklater is trending too. I don't know if you're good to know if where I'm going with this. I think I might. Is this have to do with the film that Linklater's put together? Oh, yeah, a little campaign ad. Yes, the Linklater unveiled a campaign commercial attacking that campaign slogan of Ted Cruz, Tough as Texas. And it's pretty interesting if you've seen some of uh, some Linklater movies, specifically Bernie. You know, that movie started with this really memorable uh, uh, scene of uh, Sonny Carl Davis, this actor describing the different portions of Texas. And, Guy in and, a diner, right? Yeah, yeah. colorful language. Well, Linklater teamed back up with uh, that actor, Sonny Carl Davis. Uh, where he has, speaking of tough, he has some tough words for Ted Cruz and the attacks, the personal attacks that Donald Trump made on him during the GOP primary, um, using some colorful language that we oh, probably well. shouldn't get into I on air. I don't reckon we should. It's interesting. No. I was reading something else about Ted Cruz. There's also a meme out there about him uh, being a member of KISS without makeup. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's no. pretty hilarious. But uh, <laughs> apparently Ted Cruz loves looking through these memes and tweets and all that. He just... He, he enjoys it and shares it with members of his staff. In any event, we'd love to hear what's making news in your neck of the woods. Don't ever hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter at Texas Standard and join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar is always looking for you. He's our social media editor. We're out of time here for the big broadcast. Hope you can join us again tomorrow. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington Family. PRI Public Radio International.